Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. This is the word of the Lord. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. The trump shall resound. I am looking forward to that day, and I pray the Lord would make us ready for that day so that we would not be ashamed of his coming, but that we would long for it and pray for it. Well, we're finishing up our series, our summer series on living pictures of the gospel, and I want to remind us of kind of what, where we've come very quickly. So we, each of us, is made in the image of God. That means a lot of different things, and you probably heard a lot of what that means in different sermons or Bible studies or in your own personal study. Part of what that means is that we reflect the glory of God to a watching world. We're the image of God, so when people look at us, they ought to see a living picture of the gospel. It's like a free promotional ad for the glory of God. You are, that's what you are, is you are a, a promotional ad to the glory of God. Of God. So we've looked at what that looks like as the church. The church is a living picture of the gospel as we are the body, his body uh, on this earth, a living sacrifice. We've looked at baptism and how baptism reveals the mystery of the gospel by our death, our burial, and our resurrection. We've looked at the Lord's Supper and how it reveals the mystery of the gospel by proclaiming his death. The Lord's Supper preaches, it proclaims his death until he returns. We looked at marriage, how marriage reveals the mystery of the gospel through loving husbands and submissive wives picturing the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And then last week, Pastor Gary led us in looking at our own Christian witness, how we individually bear the image of God, how we individually are pictures of the gospel every day as we're faithful ministers uh, of reconciliation. And now we're closing this series with a fitting, a fitting conclusion, and we're going to talk about death. 
death and burial. And what better props to have as your backdrop when you're talking about death than VBS decorations. I almost put on my Hawaiian shirt and my lei and my, you know, just to say that I, you know, preached a sermon about death in a Hawaiian flowery shirt. Well, why burial? Why in the world would we bring this up? I'll, I'll be willing to bet that the vast majority of us, maybe all of us, have never heard a sermon about burial, except maybe at a burial, at a graveside service. So why this? Well, that's part of the reason why. I don't think that we have good, robust teaching in, in the church on this topic of, uh, of the Christian life and Christian death. And so I hope that you will see this morning, this is my goal, from this text that Christian burial perfectly pictures one particularly beautiful aspect of the gospel, and that is the resurrection. So, just like baptism is a picture, you're buried into Christ, uh, into Christ's baptism. If we're buried with him, Romans says, um, into death, then we shall surely be united with him in the resurrection. I'm getting a little bit of feedback. It's kind of, whew, the echo though. Um, so there are countless ways you can choose in our culture today. There's countless ways you can choose to dispose of a body. I don't know if you know this, um, but you can, of course, be buried. You can be cremated. You can have a mausoleum on top of the ground. You can scatter your ashes. You can even have your cremains superheated and compressed into a diamond that your loved one can wear on their ring for the rest of their life. You can have your ashes mingled into clay and then made into a pot, like a vase, like a beautiful vase in memorial. Um, you can even have your body freeze-dried into pellets that you can then fertilize your garden with as compost. So there's a, a myriad of things you can do, all right? So why do, why do we do what we do? Why do people invent these new ways of doing things? Well, I think in the history of the world, every culture has had purpose, has had symbolism behind why they, what they do, why they do what they do with a body. So I'm going to give you a couple uh, disclaimers this morning. First off, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to present from 1 Corinthians 15 why I believe that Christian burial is an absolutely stunning picture of the hope of the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. Second disclaimer, this is not a gospel issue. There's not even a chapter and verse that says thou shalt be buried or thou shalt not cremate, right? This is not a gospel issue. It's not even a secondary issue. We can disagree on this matter and it's totally fine. We can have differing convictions Thirdly, the issue of burial versus cremation is not a litmus test of your faithfulness as a Christian. Many who choose burial, they do so ignorantly of the picture that it presents. Um, and many who have chosen cremation beautifully display the gospel through a myriad of ways in the testimony of their life, the heritage that they leave behind through their funeral and um, at, their, um, at, their, at their passing. And so... Fourthly, I guess it's okay 
that many of us are passionate about this, and it's a very personal issue. It should be. It is important, and it's personal to us, and so we're passionate about it. That's okay. And so let me be clear. I'm not saying go against your conscience. Luther would say that's neither right nor good. But I do desire that our consciences would come under the teaching of God's word, and we would have informed consciences. I think that is right and biblical. And so with Paul, our prayer this morning is that Christ would be honored in our body, whether in life or in death. So as we look at this text, let me give you a little bit of context for uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul spent about 18 months here when he planted the church at Corinth. Uh, spent about 18 months and uh, establishing it. And then after moving on to Ephesus, um, he felt the need to write to them. This is actually the, the first Corinthians is actually the second letter that he wrote to them. Um, and he is uh, correcting a few things. This church was racked with sexual immorality, with division, with theological confusion over a bunch of topics. So singleness, marriage, divorce, order in the corporate worship, and the bodily, res the bodily resurrection of not only Jesus, but of us. And so this is where we come, uh, this is where we find ourselves in, in chapter 15, is Paul teaching on the bodily resurrection, both of Jesus and the necessity of that. It is essential part of, it is an essential part of the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And without the resurrection, he says, we are still in our sins, we have no hope, and we of all people are most to be pitied. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to the gospel. We are compelled to believe it. But then he goes on, and this is where I think we don't really talk about this much. He goes on to talk about our resurrection. If we've been united with him, then we died with him, we were buried with him, and we will be one day raised with him. And man, what, a, what hope and what comfort and what a promise that brings. Also in this chapter, he deals with the philosophical question of what kind of body, this is the kind of questions he was getting, what kind of body will we have? Okay, so they're getting down to the minutia of this. Uh, and so I want to look at this. It is a mystery, indeed. It is a mystery, and so I want to look at the resurrection, and I want us to, number one, behold the mystery of the resurrection. Look back at verse 50. Behold the mystery of the resurrection. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Pause for dramatic effect. I mean, that affects us all, right? So what does that mean? How do we understand that? If flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, then we are all doomed, so it would seem. He goes on to say, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. He says, look at this mystery. Behold it. Watch it. Look at it. Let it bring to remembrance glorious truths. Let this be a picture, a living picture of the gospel for you. Behold this mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all, and we will be changed. Paul's revealing 
a mystery here. Just like marriage, Paul said of marriage, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that marriage is referring to Christ and the church. This, if you remember, is about that. So in the same way, burial, the resurrection is a mystery. And this is about that. Our Christian burial points to our future resurrection. And so before we dive too deeply in that, Paul presents us a two-fold problem. First, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In order to be in God's kingdom, one day something has to change. You cannot enter the way that you are. You are fleshly. We are but dust. Back up to verse 44 before this, before this text. Verse 44. Halfway through, he says, If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man became a living being. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So there's something that's going to happen in our resurrection that will make us fit for the kingdom. If you're in Christ, you are going to be changed. You cannot enter the way that you are. You're fleshly. You are weak. Your body is perishing. Your body is made of just dust, and that's all it is. And so we look forward to a day when we will be glorified. We will be translated. However you want to put this, we will be made different. We will be changed so that we will be fit for the kingdom of God. And this is one of our problems that has to be solved, and it's solved in the resurrection. The second is this. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In our current state, we cannot inherit the imperishable kingdom of God, not only because we're just dust, but we're also sinful. Just like the first Adam. Just like the first Adam, we're men of dust. And just like the first Adam, we have inherited sin. We can't inherit the kingdom because we've inherited sin. And sin cannot enter the kingdom. And so this body is a perishable body. It is wasting away. We are actively dying. Some of the more wise among us know this all too well. I feel it myself. We're actively perishing. But the promise of salvation is not just for this life. Look at verse 16. Talking of the resurrection, he says, If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Listen, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for our lost, for our loved ones who have gone on before us if there's no resurrection of the dead. 
He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The famous John 3.16 says, we shall not perish, but we shall inherit eternal life. We shall have everlasting life. And so salvation is not just for this life, but it's everlasting life. And in the mystery of the resurrection, we not only cease to perish like the man of dust, not only do we become like the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the true Adam, but look at verse 52. When that trumpet sounds, what will happen? The dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on, the immor- it puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, I long for that day when death will be swallowed up. It will be consumed. It will be done away with. Death will be put to death. And it is all because of Jesus Christ. What a glorious mystery, right? These things are deep. They're interesting. We we can keep looking into them more and more and more. And this is why he says, behold, this is a mystery. That's the gospel. That victory is the gospel. Death is put to death in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you put your hope in Jesus Christ, then you too will die with him. Your old man, your old life will be put to death. And you will be made new. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are resurrected with him to live a new life. For him, raised to walk in newness of life, he says. This truth causes us to change the way that we view death. As Christians, we don't view death the same way the world does. The world does. Death is wicked. Death is unnatural. It is a curse. In fact, it's the most unnatural thing. Death is the ripping of the soul from the body. It is the separation of the soul and body. Verse 26, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is our enemy. For unbelievers, physical death is a living picture of the greater reality of spiritual death, what Revelation calls the second death, the separation of the, bo- the body and soul from God for all eternity. Death in and of itself is a picture. It is a sermon. Death is not a, a natural part of life like our culture would have you believe. But for the Christian awaiting the resurrection... Spiritual death has been swallowed up in victory. 
And so physical death, while it's still an enemy, it loses its sting. This is why he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Notice he says in verse 51, we shall not all sleep. Scripture uses sleep as an illustration for death for the believer. It's a lot lighter way of viewing death than I think our culture does. For our culture, death is interminable, the end. You cease to exist. The Bible uses sleep to reference death. They're asleep in the Lord, our loved ones who have gone on. Because in the context of eternity, you're just taking a nap. Have you thought about that? Like, for a believer who is asleep in the Lord, this is so temporary. You have eternal life that you will wake up to and live everlastingly. So even using the term sleep implies the resurrection. You will rise. You will get up. You will shoot up out of that grave, and you will be made new, having a glorified body. And we see this reflected in Christian history. In fact, the word cemetery literally means sleeping places. But this doesn't mean that we don't grieve. We still grieve as Christians. In fact, we stare death in the face. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with incredible hope. And that kind of hope puts the gospel on display. Which brings us to number two. Display the hope of the resurrection. I remember vividly uh, my name being called over the intercom in eighth grade algebra. And I remember vividly when I turned the corner going to the office, the look on my uncle's face when he said, it's your dad. I remember vividly the deafening silence of that trip to the hospital. I remember vividly my mom and my sister's quiet sobs. And I remember vividly the doctor walking out of those doors and shaking his head. I remember vividly going then to the little chapel where you can mourn, you know, away from the sight of anybody else. And I remember vividly mom saying, well, it's time to go home. And I remember vividly the feeling of, what? This is the end. There's no going home. It's over. Because life as I knew it was over. I remember vividly flinging myself on the bed in the back bedroom at my grandmother's house, finally alone in my grief. And I vividly remember the frustration of my mom coming in and asking if I wanted to see the pastor and me saying, no. But I also vividly remember the comfort he brought me when she sent him in anyway. But most clearly, or at least 
one of the things that stands out so vividly is the incredible feeling of hope that I had when my associate pastor, the associate pastor of our church, read 1 Corinthians 15. He said, for the Christian burial is not the disposal of the body. That's not why we're here today. But it's the hope-filled planting of a seed in glorious anticipation of the day that that body will sprout up of the grave in glory. Oh, what hope. He began reading in verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, there's earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly one is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another, of the, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is, so that is the illustration And he goes on to say, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. One pastor is quoted as saying, a cemetery is a grave garden. We bury, not as a disposal of the body, but we plant, we sow in hope of the resurrection. What a glorious picture. And so he said, the cemetery is a grave garden. He said, each of the tombstones is like one of those seed packets that you like turn upside down and stick on a stake. It tells you what's to come. We plant, we sow in hope. What a picture. Pastor R. Kent Hughes says, burial is a sacred nod to the Philippians 3.21 reality that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He goes on to say, the the conscious purpose of a Christian funeral must be to glorify Christ by declaring the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection. A Christian funeral is to lift high the cross and the empty tomb. In other words, a Christian funeral is to preach the gospel. So there's no better picture we can put on display for the watching world 
for resurrection than Christian burial. The Book of Common Prayer from 1559 says this, For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God of his great mercy to take unto himself the soul of our dear brother here departed, we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be like his glorious body, according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Oh, a glorious hope. Christians of every ilk for 2,000 years have consistently and steadfastly practiced Christian burial to symbolize our future resurrection. Now let me pause once more. It's time for more disclaimers. Because <laughs> I'm sure we're feeling it, many of us. Notice I said symbolize. It's just like baptism. I think every time I've ever uh, watch someone be baptized in a Baptist church, what do they say? This water don't save you, right? Like, we're very, very clear about that. Like, we want to make it abundantly clear that the water does not save you. It is a symbol of what's already happened in the person's heart, right? We're clear about that. Well, so in the same way, burial does not ensure your resurrection. It's just a symbol. It's just a picture. It's a glorious one, but it's just a picture. It's not the means of resurrection. God doesn't need, need you to preserve your body carefully and put it under a vault and carefully you know, mummify it in order for him to be able to re resurrect it. He doesn't need that. It's not like he can't do it, but rather it's a symbolic picture. It's not the path to resurrection. It pictures resurrection. Billy Graham has noted that what Christians have always believed, that cremation cannot prevent a sovereign God from calling forth the dead at the end of time. That's the Book of Common Prayer, 1559, the reason it says ashes to ashes, I, I believe it says ashes to ashes because many of our brothers and sisters in Christ were being burned at the stake for their faith as martyrs. It's not like they think, oh no, what will God do? How's he gonna find all those ashes and put them together? He doesn't need us to do anything special for him to resurrect us to glory. It just puts on display for the world an incredible picture. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay? Burial does not make the resurrection possible. Nothing's impossible to God. The sea will give up its dead. Uh, uh, death and Hades will give up their dead. I'm saying this, though. Every culture in the history of the world has had reasons for why they do what they do with the body at death. It's only in our postmodern, secularized age that Christians have stripped the theological significance away and they've relegated this issue to price and preference. So one last disclaimer. It is a wicked thing to prey upon grieving families to try to convince them or even to imply that the more expensive or nice looking the casket, the more you love them. My mom, always very keenly aware of cost, as 
She watched our loved ones pass away and pay for these burials. She said, just put me in a pine box and throw me in the ground. <laughs> like, make it simple. And so now I'm like, great, now we gotta find a pine box. Like, how are we gonna be able to find that? It's probably gonna be more expensive. You know, like... <laughs> John Piper says, pastors should lead the way in cultivating a church ethos where expensive funerals and weddings are not the norm, <laughs> but rather God-centered, gospel-rooted, and Christ-exalting simplicity should be the norm. We should look differently than the world. Our hope is not in material things. That should be evident in everything that we do, everyday life. And also in our decisions about end-of-life issues. So very quickly, historically, there are three reasons for Christians' treatment of the body at death. First, we're made in the image of God. Something extremely special about that. So we take care of the body. You were created body and soul. You will exist for eternity as body and soul. Secondly, Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That means your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the way that we treat it matters. Thirdly, John 1.14 says, The Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that does something extremely special for our understanding of the body. Jesus Christ became incarnate. He took on flesh. He has flesh right now. He has a physical body in heaven. You can go up and touch him. You can put your finger in the hole in his hands. He has a physical body. You will have a physical body for all of eternity. You're not going to be a disembodied soul floating on a cloud forever. You will be body and soul for all of eternity. And then fourthly, glorify God in your body because you are bought with a price. So that's, did I say three? That's four reasons why Christians have treated the body carefully, historically. Biblically, there's four reasons why Christians have practiced burial. One is what we've been saying. It illustrates the resurrection. It's a beautiful picture. Two, Old Testament saints they buried. Again, there's no command that says thou shalt, but it's just the practice. Three, God himself buried. Now, maybe you don't know this, but Moses, at the end of his life, he went up on the mountain to look over into the promised land. God said, you can't go into the promised land because of your sin, but I'll let you go up on this mountain and look over at it. So he goes up on this mountain, full of old age. He walks up on this mountain with God. He looks into the promised land. And it says he died while he was up there because he was not allowed to go into the promised land. And it says God took his body and buried it. It also says nobody knows where, but it says that God took his body and buried it. It tells you the region just doesn't say that it says it's not marked because who knows what they would have done to Moses' body. But God himself practiced burial. How incredible the testimony of his intimacy with the Lord. 
And the fourth reason you find in this chapter in verses 3 and 4. Look there with me. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. This is the gospel. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself was buried. And so those are the reasons why Christians have practiced burial consistently over the last 2,000 years. So your burial is the last opportunity you have to preach the gospel through this living picture. One commentator said, death is an enemy, but it's also an evangelist. Death, funerals, gravesides are an incredible opportunity to preach the gospel. Ask any pastor. He'll tell you, I'd rather preach a funeral than a wedding any day. Because at a funeral, people are thinking about death, and they're thinking about eternity, and they're thinking about their life, and if it mattered, and what's at stake. They're considering eternal things. Christian funeral, the pastor's handbook states, should force congregants to stare death in the face, to really grieve, and then invite them to lift up their gaze to heaven where their departed loved one has become just like Jesus. Verse 55 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly overcame sin and its penalty and its power. He's overwhelmed it and consumed it and swallowed it up. And so lastly, thanks be to God for the victory of the resurrection. Number three. Rejoice and give thanks to God this morning. We have victory through Jesus Christ. In fact, it's helpful to know just historically many churches have embraced the picture of resurrection and burial through having all of their graves in their cemetery face east. That's because the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, will come from the east. This is a good reminder when we lay someone in the grave, they're not going to stay there. They will rise up one day and they will face the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible hope for believers and what an incredible warning to unbelievers. Let me tell you, everyone here, you will rise one day and you will face Jesus Christ. You will look into his eyes and you will either hear Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy prepared for you. Or you will hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. 
I never knew you. So I implore you. If you've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, come, trust in him. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would convict us, O Lord, where we need conviction and use that to draw us to Christ. For those who don't know you, draw them to salvation today. And for those of us who put our trust in you, may you comfort us. May you give us great hope. For those who are grieving the loss of loved ones now, whether recent death or even if it's been years, pray they'll be comforted with the comfort with which Christ has comforted us. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.